So if you caught uh, last week's episode on, uh, on the Great Reset, today we are going to continue that discussion about this uh, post-pandemic order as the elites have, uh, have so aptly uh, labeled it. And if you're tuning in for the first time, then I strongly advise you listen to the last week's episode that we did so you can catch up on this, on this particular issue pertaining to the new normal and what's coming next in, um, in our world. You know, the greatest mistake we can make is to, is to become complacent. We have to recognize that there's a grand global shift on, on the horizon, and it's already taking place. And I think that what happens to most of us is, is that we want so badly for things to be as they were, to grab onto that normal that allows us to get up, go to work, go to the grocery store, go out to the movies, go shopping, uh, get together with family or, or friends, all unmolested and without the worry of, of the mob or the new guardians of society to lock us in for our own good and the good of the community. Now, I don't know if this has happened to you, but, um, you know, recently my wife and I uh, were commenting to each other on how even when we're watching old movies here at home that our, our first impulse is to ask, wait a minute, hey, where's everyone's masks? How come, you know, they shouldn't be doing that. And I mean, it, it, and then we laugh at each other because these are older movies. And so, I mean, it's amazing how we've been so conditioned over the last few months that, that it affects even the way we perceive what we watch and what we read. Because again, we're, we're we, this, this new normal has in a way already penetrated our, 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 our psyches, whether we want it or not. And no matter what, and, 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 and no matter how much we want it, we, can, we, we can't pretend that things are or will ever be how they used to be. So we tighten up our britches and, and, and suck it up. Because what the times require now is our complete full attention, our focus and vigilance. We have to become the guardians we have to become the guardians at the watchtowers. First, of our own selves, of our homes, and of our families. But we also have to realize that if we decide to stand up against this new global reset and stand up for truth and our individual rights, that we will face resistance. Now, at first, it may be a, 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 a soft resistance, but it won't go away. Because, you see, the new system requires every individual's compliance. That's what the new system of the common good asks of us. It requires that. And not just compliance, but ultimately control. So again, we have to have to have a bit of history here because again, in order to know how we move forward, we need to understand how we've arrived to the present, to where we are now. So the phrase itself, the common good, has within it a story and, and an origin. And we have to ask the question, what are the implications of that phrase, the common good? How has it been used and, and how, is it, how is it being used now, today? There's no way we can cover the whole scope of this, and, and that's not my intent. Because 
I mean, it's, it's quite vast. But the concept of the common good has, has two main divergent interpretations, and, and, and we have to be aware of these. Okay, the one view is that the common good of a society is, is reached by the empowering of the individual and allowing each person, unrestricted and unencumbered, to exercise his or her freedom to put his or her gifts to work. And, 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 and that will not only result in his or her own prosperity, but it also allows for innovation, for a persistence of hard work. And others will also benefit because of these new industries that come as a result of this individual innovation. And, and yes, and sometimes this happens, you know, in, in, in a combination of teams. But it's because of individuals who come together that, uh, uh, that we see this, this push for innovation. That's been our history. And this, of course, uh, is capitalism and, and the free market principles at their best. Because if one looks at the various influential thinkers of history who wrote about and addressed um, this issue of the common good, they span a great many and various worldviews. So you have historical figures, uh, figures like Aristotle, like Thomas Aquinas, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, of all people. <laughs> That's an interesting one. You have John Locke uh, and you have James Madison. Then we come to Karl Marx, John Stuart Mill, and Pope John Paul II. And, and these are just a few names that, that have been prominent throughout history in terms of this particular philosophy. So these, these philosophers and theologians, um, politicians and aristocrats, uh, and both religious and non-religious, and also spanning democracy, beliefs in democracy, and free republics, and also communists, all have written about this issue about the common good. So when you look at the way the history of nations has progressed, it is, it is thinkers like these who've helped to shape the way monarchs rule, the way that society is shaped and, 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 and how it is managed, the way government must act, uh, both in matters of justice, law, and also in morality. Now remember that many of the founders of the U.S. were influenced by such thinkers as Aristotle and John Stuart Mill in terms of our founding. A lot of our founding documents and, and the philosophy of our country has come from people like John Stuart Mill and, 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 and from John Locke. Now I don't think we need to give much time to Karl Marx because, you know, most of us know the results of his own interpretation of the common good, which is really a reversal to that of, let's say, Mill's approach. The individual, in this case, must be subservient to the group or the collective. So, so while the worker has rights, there really is no room to grow out of one's station or position as a worker because if one rises in status, it follows then that the one rising must give more to the state who is the benevolent proprietor of capital or goods. And what has been the result of this vision of the common good? It's been poverty, hunger, and on a mass scale and control that is beyond draconian. And there's, it also brings with it a loss of life on a level 
of genocide that is unrivaled in the 20th century. Now, this brings us to a fascinating part of this discussion, which which we've touched on in the past in, in previous episodes. And, and in part one last week of this subject of the Great Reset, um, we see uh, the power and role of religion as it relates to politics, the state and specifically to how uh, uh, the power is distributed within the state and then through society. And this is, of course, very clear, clearly seen in the Middle Ages where the church and the state were not separate. They were together, and the church was the overarching authority, even over kings and rulers. And now, and this is where uh, in comes this uh, uh, what is known as Catholic social teaching, and this has its roots in the Middle Ages and before. Now, the major basic tenets of this particular doctrine, again, Catholic social teaching, this is what it's called. It it it, um, it 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 has various tenets, but these are the main tenets that are discussed mostly. Uh, so you have human dignity, the common good that itself is a tenant, solidarity, the role of government, stewardship of creation, and subsidiarity. Okay, so these are just some of the tenets. Now. Uh, uh, there are more, but these are um, th- these I think are the main highlights or principles of this Catholic social teaching, and these these are the things we'll be discussing uh, from a historical point of view, and then how that's developed and progressed to our time. Now, when one looks at these tenets, one can, in a way, agree that one wants human dignity for all. I, uh, we all do. We all want fair and just government, and we all want. You know, a society where where we each respect and live in solidarity with one another, that's fine, good. You know, th- th- those overarching themes are things that I think any person in their right mind would agree with. The issue comes in that this social doctrine, emphasis on the word social, more than insinuates, uh, it, more than insinuates a getting along with one another. It is... It is an exacting declaration that this social order should and must be somehow systematically implemented. And the only way to do that is by and through political means. How else can this social doctrine benefit all and create a common good for all? No one need go any further than the current Pope, Pope Francis. And also to pop uh, to 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 Pope John Paul II. Now, don't misunderstand me here. This is not some injunction on Catholicism. This is an honest look at what world leaders, both political and religious, have not only said on the issue of global governance in the past, and and also now within the context of this global reset, but that these leaders, both in the high echelons of power down to the activists in the streets who all are calling for this global shift, they mean to actually do what they're saying and enact this global system within society. So we must put our own biases aside for this conversation, for this discussion, and ask 
the hard questions here because this directly impacts you and me. It, 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 it impacts our families. It impacts our communities and the principles of liberty as we know them, as, as, as we understand them and how we live them out in our own lives. Because the cry for change can be a nice and unifying act of solidarity, but we always must ask, change at what cost? So we're going to briefly look at Pope Francis' last encyclical, which is uh, Fratelli Tutti. Now remember, last week we covered uh, a, a, a lot of what he said in Laudato Si, which is, is an encyclical that has to do with, with the environment and how we care for the earth. And here there's a lot of things that he mentions that have to do with Catholic social doctrine. So, um, and remember that Laudato Si, uh, this encyclical written a few years ago, is a call for solidarity for the world and its inhabitants towards an activism for the care and management of the earth in terms of climate change and how we must make uh, this our primary focus uh, in, 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 in this our time. Now, the most recent encyclical I just mentioned Okay, which just came out of, of uh, just about a few days ago, again called Fratelli Tutti, which is translated Brothers All, is a call for an activism towards one another. Okay, so our interrelational brotherhood and a, and a concrete change towards a borderless world. You heard me right. He says it just like that, a borderless world. Now, this particular encyclical is draped in a very eloquent and spiritual language. And, and listen, this is nothing more. It really is nothing more than a geopolitical document meant to not just advise, but to directly influence policy change for this common good. It is really coupled with, with Francis Laudato Si which is the intentional will of religious power to once again reunite with the power of state to make Catholic social doctrine the law of the land. Now, listen, I know that that's a bold statement, but, but with all of the moves being made now by the World Economic Forum, as we discussed last week, the United Nations, and all these various NGOs and special interest groups, along with activists in scope of climate change and, and, and in social justice and economic solidarity, can we really doubt that this really is the final endgame by all of these figures and, 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 and groups? This is the next chapter in human history. And this chapter is leading us towards a unification of nations, religion, state, and a complete reorganization of the social order. Now, we, we must be vigilant. And we must be ready. We must be unafraid to stand up for the truth that defines our very existence, our liberty, and our and ultimately our destiny.
So moving along here, um, we need to have a brief look at this uh, new papal encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, Brothers All, uh, to understand not only the intentions of, um, of this pope, uh, but the social doctrine he not only promotes, but that represents a religious nationalism that is really the final end game of the Vatican. So <clears throat> this under the section that is titled Reenvisaging the Role of Private Property. Okay, so this is from the new encyclical that just came out a few days ago, Fratelli Tutti. So Pope Francis says this, once more, I would like to echo a statement of St. John Paul II, whose forcefulness has perhaps been insufficiently recognized. Quote, he's quoting uh, John Paul II here. God gave the earth to the whole human race for the sustenance of all its members without excluding or favoring anyone. Unquote. Francis continues, for my part, I would observe that the Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property is absolute or inviolable and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property. The principle of the common use of created goods is the first principle of the whole ethical and social order. It is a natural and inherent right that takes priority over others, all other rights having to do with the goods necessary for the integral fulfillment of persons, including that of private property or any other type of property should, in the words of St. Paul VI, quote, in no way hinder this right, but should actively facilitate its implementation. Francis goes on, the right to private property can only be considered a secondary natural right derived from the principle of the universal destination of created goods. This has concrete consequences that ought to be reflected in the workings of society. Yet it often happens that secondary rights displace primary and overriding rights, in practice making them irrelevant. Now again, this is just one section of this rather extensive long encyclical. Okay, and then also remember that Francis is quoting two of his predecessors, John Paul II, who, by the way, was not the first pope to write about Catholic doctrine, uh, or, or, or sorry, Catholic social doctrine, but, but was the first to insert himself in the geopolitical spectrum of actual implementation of this social order. One thing is to write about it, talk about it, converse about it, right, in sort of this abstract Pope John Paul II not only wrote about it, but sought to implement it globally. And Francis has taken up this mantle. Okay, Now he goes on to say this in his encyclical, The right to private property is always accompanied by the primary and prior principle of the subordination of all private property to the universal destination of the earth's goods, and thus the right of all to their use. So, I mean, this is absolutely, uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible language because this is a violation of the most sacred principles of our freedom that have been given to us by our creator. The very 10 commandments, which serve as a God-given natural law for all creation. And by the way, which is itself a guardian of sorts to keep all humanity free 
Tell us not only thou shall not steal. That's a pretty uh, fundamental principle. But, but the Ten Commandments goes further and says, uh, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. And it goes further than just that line. It goes further to define what that means. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So let's just say spouse here because it would be wrong if you covet your neighbor's husband as well. His or her servants, his or her oxen or donkeys, so his what he owns, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So nothing that belongs to someone else is something that you can covet, which really is just the imagination or desire to have for yourself uh, what someone else has. And nor can you actually steal it, which is to take it by force. So, I mean, here, so far, the Catholic social doctrine in this regard is an affront to God and his own laws, which give individual liberty to every person. Now, remember, the World Economics Forum own reset guidelines and goals purports to do the very same thing and adhere to this very doctrine of the social common good. It is a complete reset of capitalism. And into what? I mean, just by just by this small little uh, window that we've seen into, into private property, socialism. That's what it is. It can't be any clearer. It's just repackaged and wrapped up differently. Now, I want to talk to you uh, here, uh, t- t- sort of take a pause from the encyclical. Uh, if, you, if, if you've never heard of or read the book entitled The Keys of This Blood by uh, best-selling author Malachi Martin, then you, you've got to get your hands on this book. It's available through any ebook um, platform. Uh, you can also get it through Amazon. Now, look, it's, it's not a mild or small read. But, but if you want to get to know the intentions of the Vatican power, you've got to read this. Now, this book, uh, The Keys of This Blood, uh, was written uh, and published in the early 1990s, uh, 1991 to be exact. So we're talking about almost 30 years ago. It's, a, it's another world away from the one that we're in now. But This book, from its very first pages, makes it clear that all of this is about ultimate control of the geopolitical structure and that the one to do it is none other than, you guessed it, John Paul II. This has been in the plans for decades. This is not something new. Now, this is the opening statement of the first chapter of this book, okay? Listen to this very carefully. Willing or not, ready or not, We are all involved in an all-out, no-holds-barred, three-way global competition. Most of us are not competitors, however. We are the stakes. For the competition is about who will establish the first one-world system of government that has ever existed in the society of nations. Okay. Just so that the reader can be sure, we're not hiding it here. We're not saving the best part for last or for the end of the book. This is the end game. Just so that you know from the outset of reading, this is what we're talking about. Now, remember that back then the geopolitical state um, was uh, set in between the great superpowers uh, at the tail end of the 20th century 
uh, with the U.S., the Soviet Union, and by Martin's own reckoning, Pope John Paul II. These were the three competitors back then. Okay. Now he goes on in this book to explain what he means by no holes barred. Okay. So here's Martin. He says, no holes are barred because once the competition has been decided, the world and all that's in it, our way of life as individuals and as citizens of the nations, our families and our jobs, our trade and commerce and money, our educational systems and our religions and our cultures, even the badges of our national identity, which most of us have always taken for granted, all will have been powerfully and radically altered forever. No one can be exempted from its effects. No sector of our lives will remain untouched. This is 1991, folks. Do we need any other proof? And it's quite bold. I mean, you couldn't put it in more certain terms. The only difference is that now it's all out in the open and COVID-19 is the medium, the opportunity to now end the competition and let the winner emerge. So it's curious. And, and, and listen, we have to recognize this. Have the key rivals really changed in this competition? Because you could argue that uh, you know, China has now taken its place as the third superpower in our time. But hasn't Russia sort of made a comeback in the last uh, 10 to 15 years on the world stage? You can't you can't discount Russia just yet. But I, I, I just think it's curious. Uh, so whatever the case here, uh, you know, this is this is not just a prediction, but a staunch ready or not. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. And Martin continues to unfold the litany of events leading up to uh, to John Paul's election uh, to be pope and his revolutionary and untraditional manner to which uh, he, he chose to execute the powers of his own office. Like the popes of old, Pope John Paul means to be just what his office is meant for, to be God's vicar on earth, his direct representative. And so he shakes up the religious and political world, especially with his very extroverted way of being much more in the public eye than, than the world was used to at that time. And to make of himself more than a religious figure, but also a more acceptable and popular one. I mean, at one point in the mid-90s, for those of you who, who, you know, who remember this, uh, the three most famous figures in the world at the time were Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, and Pope John Paul II, and that's no joke. Now, Ma now Martin goes on to comment uh, in his book. He says, The important effect of these globalist dreamers in the geopolitical contest is the weight they add to the forces already intent upon disposing the world toward the idea of an earthly utopia and away from any knowledge of the transcendent truth of a loving God who, as John Paul is convinced, has a very different design in store than any that they are able to imagine. And he further goes on to say, When John Paul started into the Millennium Endgame, when he initiated it, notice what he says here. He's the one that started this Endgame. He says, All of his motives were tied to his clear but decidedly long-range vision that he could supersede the plans of both East and West. So in, the, in this context, East and West is Russia and the United States or... 
You could also put that in communism versus capitalism. Okay. He says, and further, that he could leaven and finally supplant. Did you hear that? He could leaven and finally supplant. He's talking about John Paul II here. Supplant those superpower plans with some system that would tie the condition of the whole world no longer to the successes. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, to the to the success barometers in Moscow and Washington, but to the legitimate and absolute needs of the whole of mankind. Does this not sound like verbatim what is now being pushed by Pope Francis and the World Economic Forum? It is the mirror image. Now remember, John Paul along with President Reagan were instrumental in this harsh blow towards communism. And how did he do it? Through Catholic social doctrine. And Martin confirms this as he states further on in this first chapter, he says, The first instrument the Pope fomented, solidarity, was devised purely and simply as a model of social, uh, of social cultural liberty. And he goes on to say, The social cultural model in and of itself was not an original idea. It traced back at least as far as the argument set out by Thomas Aquinas even uh, 700 years ago to the effect that the two seminal and uh, ineradicable loves of any individual human being are the love of God and the love of one's native country. And further, that these can live and flourish only, listen to that, only within the framework of a religious nationalism. Wow. That is absolutely staunch and scary language. Now, Martin goes on to say, to some degree then, solidarity was the first international arena in which John Paul's early idea, his early vision, if you will, of religious nationalism as the vehicle for social cultural freedom made its debut in the hostile territory of the Soviet Union and at the same time went head to head with the basic premise of the capitalist superpower. So it was John Paul's intention to basically take down communism and capitalism in favor of a religious Nationalism. What world? uh, What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. The Middle Ages. It's right there. Clear as crystal. There's already religious precedent. It's there. So the principles behind the Great Reset are not new. They've been in place since before the turn of the century. In essence... What is being called for here is the joining of both the powers of the church and the state as they once were in the Middle Ages with the church at the head. And remember that this crown of authority was taken from the Roman Catholic Church in 1798 at the height of the French Revolution. And now this once great superpower in Europe seeks to regain that crown in this new Millennium. Make no mistake about it. Now, Martin brings it home with this absolutely stunning statement, as if these other statements weren't stunning enough. Here's another one for you. Clearly, the new agenda 
Heaven's agenda, the grand design of God for the new world order, had begun. And Pope John Paul would strike now in the arena of the Millennium Endgame as something more than a geopolitical giant of this age. He was, and remains, the serene and confident servant of the grand design. (laughs) What else do you need to hear? And that endgame is now, really for the first time, becoming a fast-approaching reality. With the very language and plan of the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, the IMF, and now the papal power still carrying on the legacy that John Paul began back then in the, in the 90s, before that, but really when it was really seen in, 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 in the 90s, and, you know, and maybe 91 may seem like a lifetime ago, but in the scope of things, it only feels like time passing in the blink of an eye because here we are in 2020. It's all there, plain as day, clear as crystal. And our current time, 2020, this year, is the new landmark of this 21st century millennium endgame. <laughs> So we fast forward now 30 years to our time, and Pope Francis says this of the current state of things in our world. So this is now from his encyclical. The development of a global community of fraternity based on the practice of social friendship on the part of peoples and nations calls for a better kind of politics, one truly at the service of the common good. At the service of the common good. And he says, this is what this world looks like. No borders, one economy, one people, one government, and one religion. It's all there in this current encyclical. And it may be said in a a different way than perhaps it was said 30 years ago, but the language and the intentions are a complete and reorganized world. A reset to fit this new matrix of geopolitical dominance towards this global community. Now let's go back for a moment to the World Economic Forum. I shared their website uh, with you uh, last week where you can, uh, and, and by the way, you should spend time searching and digging for yourself. Uh, this is something that, 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 that here on Truth Real, I constantly am, am saying, because you can't just depend on me or on other voices coming out and, and speaking about these things. Yes, listen. And yes, uh, you know, take, you know, take time to, 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 to really pay attention to what's being said. But you've got to be able to dig into these things on your own. And that's why every week uh, when you go to the, to the websites or, or, or to the show's website, truthreal dot transistor dot fm and that's f m as in mary 
Okay, so truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you go to today's show, you'll see, on um, uh, if you scroll towards the bottom, program notes. And those program notes will have all the links to all the articles to, to, this, um, to, to this new encyclical, by the way. Okay, and it's rather long. And I'm not saying that everyone, you know, that this is, you know, everyday reading. But this is the problem. Not everybody reads it. And so we go about our lives, and then when something happens, boom, we're like, wait a minute, this came out of nowhere. It's because we don't dig for ourselves. We don't search for ourselves. Okay? And and on October 9, just a few days ago, the World Economic Forum immediately pronounced and shared their solidarity with the Pope's new encyclical. Okay, and so here they comment, and again, this will be on today's show's program notes, so you can read this for yourself. But here the the WEF comments, Pope Francis has issued a scathing indictment of neoliberalism. The Pope blames the dogma of neoliberal economics for making us more vulnerable to COVID-19. He calls for greater multilateral, uh, greater multilateral cooperation and a focus on human dignity. The story did not end the way it was meant to, Pope Francis wrote recently, deftly excommunicating about a half century's worth of economic ideology, basically capitalism. In a striking 43,000-word-long encyclical published last Sunday, the Pope put his stamp on efforts to shape what's been termed a great reset. So this is the WEF, okay, in their own words, confirming that, hey, we're on the same page here. And the, and, and again, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, 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 people who are involved in the WEF are who? Political and, and government leaders of the world. And now saying that, hey, everything that that Pope Francis just said in his newest encyclical, we're, we're on the same boat. Okay, so uh, going on to what they continue to say, the WEF, uh, I'll, I'll repeat this last sentence. So he published uh, uh, this encyclical last Sunday. The Pope put his stamp on efforts to shape what's been termed a great reset of the global economy in response to the devastation of COVID-19. The story he is referring to is neoliberalism, a philosophy espousing austerity, privatization, deregulation, unbridled markets, and relatively weak labor laws. While it's been faithfully told through innumerable economists and policymakers since the 1970s and put into practice in prominent ways, the Pope believes this tale has now worn thin. They go on. He's not alone. The encyclical entitled Fratelli Tutti, Brothers All, also calls for greater multilateral cooperation among countries and urges a reform of the United Nations so the concept of the family of nations can acquire real teeth. Okay, (laughs) that doesn't sound at all militant. Does it really sound all that nice? It's a curious way to put this whole cohesion of globalism and fraternity as something that can gain real teeth. That's that's militant language. And again, the end game, while framed in a lovely image of brotherhood, love and unity, does not directly say who or what will implement and manage this brotherhood. It's again, it's sort of wrapped up in this beautiful flowery language. Human nature is anything but fraternal. 
Let's just say it as it is. And it is not to say that neither you or I do not want a world where we can all live in peace and unity. Of course. Of course I want that. And I know you do too. I mean, what person in their right mind wouldn't want that type of world? But never, ever at the expense of the principles given us by our Creator that grants us our inalienable rights to liberty of conscience, liberty of thought, and liberty of choice. To legislate morality within a system of humanism that favors the collective over the individual, I mean, has that ever worked? No. History is proof. It's never worked. Because it all comes down to control. Now, further proof of all of this, let's go back again to Pope Francis's latest encyclical. More of his words. He says... True, a worldwide tragedy like the COVID-19 pandemic momentarily revived the sense that we are a global community, all on the same boat, where one person's problems are the problems of all. Once more, we realize that, listen to this, I mean, this is, I mean, goes against everything we believe about freedom and liberty. He says, once more, we realize that no one is saved alone. We can only be saved together. This is an extraordinary statement because it completely eviscerates the value of personhood and the innate value and uniqueness of each individual as created by God. This is, this is liberation theology and critical theory at its best. Salvation can only come to us by groups. And if you're in the wrong group, and again, society is the one that's determining this. If you're in the wrong group, then you are the problem and must be dealt with. Is this not the thinking one sees in the genocides of history, in ethnic cleansings, in the persecution of groups such as Christians who have suffered at the hand of none other than that of the power of papal Rome? It, it, this is so ironic. If, if, if it is for the greater good, for the common good of the human family, will anyone who does not comply be considered expendable? I mean, it's a pretty reasonable question. Can the leaders and so-called visionaries of this new post-pandemic order coerce you or me to do as the rest of the globe is doing because it's all for the common good? This is not at all what Christianity teaches, by the way. This is other, this is nothing other then utopia, they may say it's not utopia, but that's what it is, the building and establishment of a kingdom here on earth, an earth that continues to sink into debased way of thinking and an immorality that is now being called on by the religious and political leaders alike, by the way, to accept by the greater community because of the choices one makes for his or her own life. Because those belong to that group's identity. And when you question that, you are nothing but a bigot, racist, homophobe, and dissident that needs to be punished by society in order for social justice to be had. That's the beautiful fairy tale utopia world that society, political leaders, and religious leaders are calling for. Love is not a license to redefine identity at the expense of individual conscience and self-evident truth. Love can only exist in the truth of principle. That's why we have self-evident truths in 
inalienable rights because they cannot be questioned, rewritten by anyone. No one has that authority. Nobody. And you realize that in this framework of a religious nationalism, Jesus and his teachings are being appropriated to fit a narrative that favors these powerful and elite who claim to have the answers for the ills of society. And look, whether you believe in Jesus or not, I really don't care. We're talking about these things as concepts and, and, as, and as real principles throughout history. So because this is coming from the supposed uh, mother church, as they claim to be, as, as the Pope and the hierarchy of the church claim to be, the mother church— and, 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 and this answer to our ills, right, that we need a religious nationalism, well, they claim to be the representative of God on earth, the vicar of Christ. So we have to look back at Jesus. Whether you believe in him or not isn't the issue. The issue I have here in terms of what's true or not, that's what we're trying to get at. So again, this, this framework of a religious nationalism is not taught by Jesus himself. It's being appropriated. His very teachings are being appropriated by the papal power to fit a narrative that favors him and the political elite that want to change the order of society. Whether whether you're a Christian or not, again, isn't the point here, because one must be aware with what we're dealing with. So whether you know the story of Jesus or not, but most of us, I think, do, when Jesus is brought before Pilate, and again, he's brought before Pilate by his own people because he's a threat to the status quo, the social order of things. Okay, when he's brought before Pilate, who is, who is the governor of, of, of this region where Jesus is in Palestine, okay, Pilate asks him this question, are you the king of the Jews? Because, you see, the people were saying, this is not our king. He says he is, but he's not our king. So Jesus answers Pilate as he's in court here. He's being questioned. He says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight to set me free. But my kingdom, as of yet, is not of this world. He makes it plain twice. And this is a revolutionary statement. It is, because... This statement represents the character of who Jesus was and what he stood for and what he ultimately came to do. He wasn't interested in politics in setting up a political social order on earth. This is what makes Jesus so unique among other beliefs uh, systems. He does not seek an earthly utopia. Now remember, he did not deny being king. His claim was that he was the son of God. So being that he had the power to free himself and, 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 and also had a great popularity among the people because he had more than just 12 followers. It wasn't just him and 12 disciples here. It was him and a pretty big crowd because he had traveled all over Palestine, all over Israel. Okay. And so his message was not about freedom from the Roman oppressors. His message was about freedom for the human race. Unfortunately, many among the Jews of that time believed that the Messiah, uh, or Jesus, would conquer the Romans and take his place on the throne in Jerusalem to once again bring back the glory of old, of, of, of the old reign of David, because David was so beloved, uh, and, and, and that he would bring that reign, that glory, back to its rightful place. Now, one thing is certain. Jesus is not interested in control. 
in creating a nationalism of religion or any other sort. And he's not interested in establishing a power on earth that leads to a utopian fraternity. Never does he say that. So why is the representative of God on earth, the Pope, as he calls himself, condoning and furthering a global kingdom opposite of the one Jesus espouses, lives, and teaches about? Because Jesus transcended this earthly game of thrones. And no, his his purpose was to free us all as individuals from this present order of things. The Great Reset, this global fraternal community, may use a moralistic language, but it is not and does not represent the values of the kingdom Jesus speaks of or what he lived for and died for. Because the very order of God is based on the freedom of all humanity. The freedom to choose based on each person's intrinsic value, not by which group you belong to. These groups that, by the way, are contrived by by men. But by the very truth of each person's unique creation, you are valued and I am valued because of the unique signature that has been given to me and given to you. Ultimately, really you believe or you don't believe. It's, it's, it's that simple. The salvation that Jesus talks about is one from that which oppresses all of us, and that is sin. And we've discussed what that entails here on this podcast in the past. And this is what, again, many cannot accept from Jesus because of this ethical framework um, or, or moralistic framework. Today's ethical framework is one of identity, and if my identity or choices fall into this category of sin as defined by Jesus or the Bible, then that is a violation of my personhood, because I am accountable to no one. But Jesus himself says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. This has nothing to do with religion. The more we continue to see Jesus and what he came to do and what he taught as issues of religion and through and, and through these goggles of religion, the more we're prone to reject these, te- these, these teachings and these notions. Why? Because of the systematic religious powers that have appropriated who Jesus was to use him as a means to control others throughout history and that are trying to do that even now. And this is the problem facing us in 2020. Anyone claiming to have the answer to humanity's ills by the establishment of a power structure here on earth, where one is forced to comply, where one's voice is no longer considered important to listen to, unless it agrees with the dominant global narrative, where the only way to be saved is through the group you belong to, it does not represent the nature or the intention of Jesus. Love never denies individual personhood. Never. Now, last week I read from a passage at the very end of the episode. I I read from this passage found in the Bible, in the book of Luke. I'm going to read it again here. This particular passage says this, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and in various places famines and deadly and devastating pestilences, plagues, and epidemics. You will be betrayed and handed over, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And on the earth, there will be distress and anger among nations, 
in utter fear at the roaring and tossing of the sea and the waves, people fainting from fear and expectation of the dreadful things that they see coming on the world. So when all these things begin to happen, stand up and look up for your salvation is near. Now let me ask you, when you listen to that, when you read that, isn't that the condition of the world now? These words were spoken by Jesus over 2,000 years ago. And again, this is way beyond religion. Don't stop. Don't even look at this in terms of religion. Look at it for what it is. Remember something. The Great Reset is being set up as a way to save humanity, to bring salvation for all of us because of the specter of doom that is coming. This is their language. It's to save the planet from the impending doom of climate change. Greta Thunberg and other activists, uh, politicians, and, 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 and all are touting the new time frame for our salvation. We only have seven years before we reach the point of no return. So let me ask you something. When, you're, when you read the, uh, this encyclical, when you hear what the activists are saying, when you, when you listen to the World Economic Forum, they're all saying the same thing. We don't have much time left. It's very much apocalyptic language. Who needs religion or the Bible to talk about apocalypse when these very leaders and elite are talking about annihilation and extinction? So is the Great Reset what will save us all? Is, will the Great Reset, will this new social order give us a fairer world and one where there is no, leave, where there is no evil, no death, and no conflict? Because, see, that's the one that they don't talk about. Yes, let's end this pandemic. Let's come together in solidarity to end poverty. Let's come together and, and make fairer policies uh, uh, for, for our world economically so everyone can be at the same level. No one higher, no one lower. But they never really talk about in terms of annihilating death. Let's get rid of death. And what about evil? So, the Jesus worldview also gives us a specter of what's happening in the world. This darkness and this evil, such as the world has never seen before. We are now on the brink of that. So, are the words in this passage in Luke, are they true? Once again, the choice to believe it is yours and mine. And again, that's the beauty of it. In this framework of Jesus and being created equal, having a creator that created us all, we have the choice. We're not forced into it. We're not coerced into it. It's our choice. It's laid before us. Here's what leads to life and here's what leads to salvation. Now, I've already made my choice. I don't want what the Pope and the authors of this great reset are offering. Because if I believe that my inalienable rights are given to me and to you because we are created equal, then I'll choose to believe the one who bases his own kingdom on these very principles of truth, justice, and love. Now, the conversation on this particular issue isn't over because it's so vast. There's so much more to cover. But, you know, I could, I could do a whole show that's two or three hours. But for today, that's enough. Look and search for yourself. And the conversation on this very issue on the Great Reset 
We'll continue next week. See you then. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Truth Reel. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do it where all podcasts are available. Also visit us at our website, truthreel.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you're interested in donating to the cause of the refugees, please go to liveforone.com. That's liveforone.com. Join us as we continue to help our brothers and sisters, especially during this crisis under the COVID-19 pandemic.